you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention, please, to the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, we'll read the first 11 verses. And as Jonathan said on our announcement period before the service began, this is the last message in our series of looking at the uh, I am sayings of our Lord. Uh, there are at least seven such statements recorded by John in his gospel of things that our Lord said that he was. We began the series with an introductory message based on the passage from the book of Exodus where Moses stood before the Lord at the burning bush, received his instructions to lead Israel out of their bondage from Egypt, then asking the question, when I get there, they're going to ask, where, uh, by what authority do I do this? Who has sent me? What am I going to say to them? And uh, the Lord said to him, say to them, I am who I am. And uh, that is a present tense statement. It is a title of the Lord. Uh, it speaks of his eternal existence where he has always existed. Never has been a time when he hasn't existed. He exists today. He will forever exist. And he has the authority and the power uh, to deliver us from our sins. And so uh, Moses went forth and delivered the people uh, from the bondage of Egypt. Uh, but when our Lord Jesus was here on this earth, uh, there was a time when he was questioned about who he was, where he came from, and by what authority that uh, he was doing what he was doing. And uh, he made the comment, before Abraham was, I was, uh, I am. And uh, so, boy, that's, that set up a storm, a <laughs> fire, uh, because when he made that statement, he was claiming deity. He was saying that he, in essence, was God and that he has always uh, has existed and he had the authority to do what he was saying and accomplish what he here came here to accomplish. And so uh, in John's gospel, there are seven times at least recorded by him when he made the statement, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the water of life, uh, and I am the so forth. Today we're looking at this seventh one entitled, I am the true vine. So John chapter 15, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we'll begin with verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, these words from Matthew, uh, from John's gospel, 15th chapter, are believed to be a part of what's called the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse covers chapter 13 through 17. And it is believed that our Lord met with his disciples in what was called the upper room, the second floor of a building, a house, <clears throat> called the upper room. And while there, he bathed their feet and said, uh, I, your Lord and master, bathed your feet. If I do this, then certainly you should for one another. We don't, we don't uh, wash one another's feet. We believe that this was simply uh, uh, not an ordinance, but simply an act of example, saying that we are to serve one another. Now, certainly we're not beneath washing one another's feet, should that be necessary, that we follow the Lord's example in that. But our church only has two ordinances, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper, which both illustrate and support the idea of our Lord's uh, death, burial, and, and resurrection. But nonetheless, he bathed their feet, and then he talked about his, uh, his departure, that he was going back to heaven. This is in the 14th chapter. Uh, they were very disturbed and concerned that he was leaving. Uh, then he talked about having, uh, when he got to heaven, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit back. While he was here on this earth, he was limited in his body. It could be only one place at one time. Uh, but in order that he might dwell in your heart and my heart and everyone else's heart who believed in him and received him as Lord and Savior, there, there, we needed the Holy Spirit. And so he said, when I get to heaven, I'll send the Holy Spirit back and he'll be with you and he'll teach you and guide you and fill you with his power and with his presence. Now, notice when you come to the end of chapter 14, please look at the end of chapter 14 and verse 31. Uh, well, to get to the complete sentence, verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. He's talking about the devil. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Now notice these words. Get up, let us go from here. So it is believed at this point, Jesus leads his disciples out of the upper room uh, they are going down into the Kedron Valley. Uh, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will pray and will be betrayed by Judas into the hands of the Roman soldiers and members of the Sanhedrin to be tried and crucified. Uh, so because of this expression at the end of verse 31, get up, let us go from here. If you visualize in your mind that this is at the nighttime, of, it's at nighttime. And uh, it's a full moon because it's the Passover. Uh, it is believed that there is a huge uh, grapevine uh, on, on, the, on the hill of, uh, of the Mount of Olives, or certainly there in the, in the valley of the Kedron Valley. Um, and, and if that being so, then they would have to have walked through that vineyard to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. The moonlight would have been shining upon the vineyard, and uh, they would have been able to see uh, the glow and the beauty of, of the ripe and delicious looking grapes that were dangling there on the, on the branches and the vines that were there in the vineyard. It is believed also that that route would have taken them by the tabernacle, the temple. Uh, the temple would have been, uh, had, had doors on it and engraved in the doors uh, would have been grapevines. And so it is believed that our Lord took advantage of walking through the vineyard and seeing the, the, the doors of the temple with the grapevines on them uh, to give this metaphor, uh, calling himself, uh, I am uh, the true vine. 
Now, the Bible tells us that originally the nation of Israel was God's vine. Uh, we get this in several places. Uh, for example, in the Psalms, uh, chapter 80 and verse 8 and 9, it says of Israel as a nation and the Lord, he said, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the land and ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. So without question, it is believed that the psalmist in that chapter, in those verses, is talking about the nation of Israel. But we know also that Israel failed to fulfill the responsibility of being the Lord's chosen vine. You read Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 7, and the Lord denounces and rebukes them for having uh, turned into sour grapes because of their waywardness. They had turned their back on the Lord. They had chased after pagan gods and idols, and uh, they had uh, failed to fulfill their responsibility and role as the vine and the grapevine of the Lord. Consequently, when he comes here in person and lives out his life and begins uh, the journey to his death, uh, he is saying to them, in essence, I am the true vine. I am the one who will fulfill the original responsibility uh, of, of the Lord. And what was that original responsibility uh, of the nation of Israel? Well, you go back to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis and uh, Abraham, uh, who is the father of the nation of Israel and so forth, uh, was given the commission from the Lord uh, that it would be through him uh, the Messiah would come, his family uh, and so forth, and that uh, he would spread the good news throughout the entire world and to all the nations of the world uh, that God has made himself available and accessible to them uh, if they would repent of their sins and trust him. Uh, but, of course, the nation of Israel failed to do that, and so the Lord is now... Uh, presenting himself as I am the true, true vine. Now, as we come to this 15th chapter, there are at least three things that we need to keep in mind or else we're going to misunderstand what our Lord is saying. The first thing that we need to understand is that what he is saying in chapter 15 is for believers only. It is for believers only. Our Lord is not talking about how to be saved. He is talking about how a saved person should live his life. And he focuses on the extreme importance of the branch being connected to the vine, which is a metaphor of saying that we need to be connected to Jesus Christ. How do we get connected to Jesus Christ? By faith. We repent of our sins. We recognize that Jesus is God's son that he is our savior. Uh, we repent of our sins. We pray and invite Jesus to come into us. And so we become connected. We are a, a branches. He is the vine. But uh, the Lord is not talking here about being saved. He's talking about now having been saved. This is how you live and you live and you can produce and be productive in, in producing spiritual fruit only if you are properly connected to the vine. The second thing that you need to keep in mind is not only is this for believers only, but the primary subject of our Lord's teaching is abiding, not in fruit bearing, although fruit bearing is important. 
Let me walk you through some verses of chapter 15 where the word abide is found. Look at verse 4. He says it twice. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vines. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So that's three times. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Look at verse 6. Anyone who does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Verse 7. Twice it's mentioned, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And then verses 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So ten times in these few verses of scripture, our Lord underscores and speaks the word of abide. Hopefully uh, next week, the Lord willing, I'll, I'll maybe spend some more time on what it means to abide in, in the Lord. Uh, but uh, it, the idea is not, not focused so much as we have misunderstood, I think, about fruit bearing, although that is important. You cannot bear fruit unless you abide. You've got to abide in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus is what produces the fruit. Producing the fruit is what brings honor and glory to the Father. So he's talking here about abiding in the Lord and being able to produce fruit. And then the third thing that we need to remember is that this illustration that Jesus uses uh, would have been familiar to every disciple uh, in his day, but not necessarily in our day. And therefore, we need to be careful not to milk every detail for symbolic meaning. Uh, to begin just breaking it down, saying this represents this and this represents that. Sometimes uh, you, you miss the whole purpose. A parable uh, has only one lesson, one primary lesson that it teaches. And uh, the other is just added to it to, to, to make it more meaningful. But in, in this passage, he's focusing on the essential, uh, the importance of being abiding with him, being connected with him. Now, with that in mind, there are, there are several things that I want to focus on in the moments that we have together. And I want to begin with the statement that Jesus himself made that he was the true vine. Look at it in verse 1, Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, the true vine. Now, there are four words that help amplify the meaning of the word true. The first word is the word genuine, genuine. So for him to say, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the genuine vine. Uh, Christ is the true, the genuine, the ideal, the perfect vine just as he is the perfect light, the perfect bread, and the perfect witness. A thing can be true as over against error or falsehood, or a thing can be true over against that which is counterfeit. And he is saying, I am not counterfeit. I am not a lie. I'm not telling a lie. I am true. I am genuine. I am the real deal, as we would say. So genuine. I am the genuine true vine. The second term I think that we need to keep in mind is the word exclusive, exclusive. Uh, Jesus himself alone is the great source for the Christian. Uh, he is the only true vine that there is. There are not others. He is the only one. So he is exclusive. 
And you say, well, pastor, that's narrow-minded. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Uh, but it's true. He is the only true vine there is. The third word is the word deity. Deity. You know, only God can claim that he is the only true and living vine. For him to make such a claim would also be for him to claim his deity, that he is the son of God. And, and then, of course, in John chapter 14, go, just keep your place here at 15, but just go back to John chapter 14. Uh, in the upper room, Jesus is talking about his leaving. He said, I, I'm, I'm going away. I'm going to make a home for you and so forth. Well, Thomas, if you'll notice in John 14 and verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How, how do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I and the Father are one and the same? So he is claiming his deity here that he is indeed God in the flesh. So he's genuine. He is the only one who can exclusively claim his deity. And then the fourth word is intimacy, intimacy because he's talking about the connection between the vine and the branch. And there has to be an intimate, personal connection of the branch to the vine. And he's talking about this intimate relationship between the branch and the vine. Earlier, he talked about being the bread of life, to be the water of life. Well, yet bread has to be eaten, water has to be drunk, to be a branch in the vine is even more intimate than that. A branch draws life by simply abiding and being connected with the source. And so Jesus is the genuine, true vine. Notice the second thing. Not only Jesus himself is the true, genuine vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Look also at verse 1. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. And so the identity of the vine dresser is God himself. You have God the Son who's the true vine, but you have God the Father who is the vine dresser. Vine dresser. Now what was the responsibility of the vine dresser or the keeper of the vine would be another way we would say it, the keeper of the vine. Uh, the farmer, we could also use that term. Uh, there was two responsibilities that the vine dresser had. One was the cleansing of the vine and the branches. And the other one, the purging of the branches. The cleansing of the branches could be seen in the term verse 2 and verse 3 in the words to take away. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse 4, he says, uh, no, verse 3, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So now the words to take away can be understood in two different ways. It could mean that uh, he's talking about a person who loses his salvation uh, or a person who never got was saved to begin with, just like Judas going through the facade, just pretending outwardly uh, that they're saved but are, but are really not. And there are some people who, who, who take that interpretation. But if you do, then you're violating what I said at the beginning, 
that Jesus is not talking about salvation. He's talking about abiding and bearing fruit. And you'll notice the term that he says, uh, you are clean. He says in in verse uh, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, again, he's talking to the disciples here. I know that Judas is not there now, but he, and later, earlier in, in I believe it was in chapter 13, uh, when he's washing the feet of the disciples, uh, he comes to Peter and Peter says, I don't want you to wash my feet. And he says, well, Peter, uh, you, you need to be clean and, and all of you are clean, but you need to have your feet washed. Again, our Lord is making the statement, you are already clean. And so I take this to mean when he says to take it away, the word take it away can also mean to be lifted up. Now, genuinely true, it is say you can lift it up and take it away and throw it away. Or you can lift it up. Now, in your mind, imagine here's the vine dresser. He's walking through uh, the vines, uh, the, the branches. Maybe he comes to a, a vine that is, is heavy with grapes. And uh, they have fallen to the ground. So he lifts it up and he wipes it off. Maybe he has some, uh, some cloth with him uh, and, and he, he cleans it because it's been laying on the dirt. If he leaves it laying on the dirt, it's going to all mess up. It can get infections. It can get diseases. It, it'll spoil. So he lifts up the vine, takes it up off the ground, cleans it up. He has string and he ties it again to, to the post or whatever the vine is attached to, to keep it from lying down on the ground. And there are many who, who take that approach. And I tend to take that approach as well, because again, he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about uh, losing your salvation. Uh, notice also he is saying, look at verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, now, now don't separate those two things he's talking about. Every branch, every branch, the branches that produce fruit, the branches that don't produce fruit, every branch in me, he says, that does not bear the fruit, then he takes it away. So I think he's talking here about maybe a worldly Christian or an immature Christian who is not producing the fruit. And I believe that there are some other verses of scripture that verify this. For example, in uh, the pruning process, the pruning process, he does, he does take a knife and he does trim it uh, if it's not producing as well. But you'll, you'll notice in, for example, the passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, what's he talking about? He's talking about immature Christians. And he said, I wanted to feed you a, a, a bread and steak dinner but you had not developed your spiritual digestive system to the point that you could do that, you're still sucking on a spiritual milk bottle. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that is talking about. I wanted to feed you a meal, but you were still taking milk. You've not matured and progressed. Then later on, he says that uh, uh, he compares them to building a building on a foundation. You've got to have a strong foundation, uh, and, and then you're going to have the day of judgment where you're going to be held accountable. And he said, uh, he, the Lord, you're going to stand before the Lord and everything that's made of wood and hay and stubble will be burned up. Only that which is made of precious gem, gold and silver and so forth will last. And he said, there will be some who will be saved only by fire. 
So what does all that mean? That means that it is possible for a person to have a genuine relationship with Jesus, but become so worldly and so attached to the world that they have become useless and unproductive as a Christian. And they are still spiritual babies and they're not producing. And, and so uh, the Lord uh, just at, at the day of judgment, she's going to put it all in fire and, and it'll be burned up and they'll be saved. But that's about all you can say about them. And, and so I, I tend to believe that this is what the Lord is saying here, that he's talking about cleaning up the branches and the, and the vine that's fallen to the ground. And, uh, and every, he says it, every branch in me, even though it does not produce fruit, uh, that will be taken away and the fruit that he doesn't produce and should have produced will not be there and, and what he has done will, will be consumed in fire. Now, I know that not everybody will, uh, will, will agree with that interpretation, but uh, uh, for, for now, that's, that's the position that I hold. Jesus himself is the true vine. The father is the vine dresser. And number three is believers are the branches. Again, look at verse five. Well, look at verse two. He says, every branch in me. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means that you are in Christ. That's what he's saying. Every branch in me. Well, who's me? Christ. So every branch in me. Notice in verse four. Abide in me and I in you. Abide where? In me. Verse five, abides where? In me. Verse six, abides where? In me. And then you'll notice in verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you will and it will be done unto you. So we understand the identity of the branches. You are a branch and you are connected to Christ. All of them are. Number four, branches are to abide in the vineyard. Now, how do you abide in the vineyard? Well, hopefully we'll explore this deeper this next Sunday, the Lord willing. But there are two things that you need to do in order to abide in Jesus. It needs to be a daily abiding. This is not a once in a week thing that you experience in the Lord. We come together on the, on the Lord's day to worship the Lord as a congregation and a people. But you should have a daily communion with the Father. You should spend some time with the Lord every day and not just every day, but all during the day. I remember reading a story about Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, who it was said of him one day, one of his deacons in his church saw Spurgeon walking across the street when he suddenly stopped in the middle of the street, took his hat off and started praying. The deacon later asked him what he was doing. And he said, at that time, I felt that there was a cloud between myself and the Lord. And I needed to stop and pray and ask the Lord to forgive me for what I had done or said and didn't want to proceed any farther until I had done that. So Spurgeon was a man who walked in the spirit and was constantly aware of the fact that he was in the presence of the Lord and that he needed to have a constant, continuous awareness of that. And when he became aware of some sin or something wasn't right in his life, he wanted to get it straight before the Lord. And we need to do the same thing. We need to start every day with the Lord in prayer, but all during the day, the day the devil is going to attack us. He's going to throw temptations out in front of us. He's going to try to bring us down. He wants to kill us and destroy us. And when we are aware that there's something that exists that I have done or said between myself and the Lord, I need to stop right then and there. I don't need to say, well, I'll take care of that tonight when I get home and, and have my nighttime prayer. No, do it right then. 
You start right then. You stop and take care of whatever the business or whatever it is between you and the Lord and make it right, right then and there. That's what I mean by a daily consciousness of his guidance and his help. And not only having a daily time with the Lord, but there needs to be, of course, a keeping of his commandments. Look at verse 10 and verse 14. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The Lord is not asking us to do something that he himself is not doing. The reason why he could do what he did, the reason why he could accomplish what he accomplished, say what he had to say, was because he carried on a right, genuine, pure relationship between him and his father. Everything the father told me to do, I obey the father. I keep my father's commandments. And so he wants us to do the same. Verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So we are to stay up on our prayer life with the Lord and we are to keep his commandments if that's what it means to abide in the vine. Simplified. The fifth thing that I point out to you is abiding in the vine will produce fruit. It will. Many times we're, we're focusing, well, we got to produce the fruit. Produce the, well, yes, but how do you do that? By abiding. Now, the word abide can be translated continue, continue in the Lord, or remain, remain in the Lord. So it means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life can work in and through us to produce the fruit. Now, what is the fruit that you and I are to produce? Well, there have been many suggestions, but the one that I tend to believe is the fruit that we are to produce is what the Bible calls, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the fruit of the Spirit. After all, is it not the Spirit who abides in us? When you were saved, you invited Jesus into your heart, but who actually came into your heart was the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is Jesus in the Spirit. And so if you are a Christian, if you've been saved... You don't ever have to ask the Lord to come and be with you. He is with you because when you invited Jesus into your heart, you got the Holy Spirit in your heart. And, and Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the temple of the Lord. The Lord doesn't live in this building. This building that we are in, this sanctuary that we are in, is a building that has been constructed and dedicated to the worship of God. But God doesn't live here. God lives in you. You are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. Christ in you, uh, the hope of glory. And, and, the, and the branch is in me, he says. So, uh, so the, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And, and I think that what he's talking about, uh, our producing is, the, is what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, now take your Bibles, keep your place here, but turn to the book of Galatians. Uh, the, the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Paul, again, is talking about a worldly Christian in opposition to a, a, a godly committed Christian. And, and a worldly Christian he describes in terms of walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh. The, the, the genuine, the, the, the holy Christian, the dedicated Christian is walking in the spirit. So in Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19, I'm reading out the New Living Translation. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these, let me tell you again as I have before that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he is a fleshly person and he lives that kind of lifestyle. But then you move over into the 22nd, uh, uh, the 13th verse, excuse me, the, the 22nd verse of, uh, of Galatians and he gives, he says, but the fruit of the spirit how do you know that you have the spirit? How do you know that you're walking in the spirit? Well, this is the kind of fruit that you will produce. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. So I believe that what he's describing in verse 22 is the fruit of the spirit that we are to produce. And this is how you know, one of the ways that you know that you are a child of God, you, you look for, for these characteristics and these attitudes in, in your life and in another person's life. This will be the product that is produced by your walking and being filled with the spirit of God. Now in conclusion, the seventh thing that I want to point out to you is the blessings of fruit bearing. And he mentions four. Four blessings that will result if you are a fruit-producing, abiding Christian. In verse 7, he talks about your prayers are answered. Your prayers are answered. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. Now, you have to be careful here because he's not, he's not a genie that you, know, that, that you rub the, the bottle and he pops out and says, well, what do, you, what do you wish? Make a wish and I'll grant it. No, God's not a divine spiritual genie. I believe what he's saying here is exactly what he says. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you continue in me, if you walk in the spirit, if your will is in conformity to my will, you ask what you will and it will be done for you. It will be done unto you. An example of this, again, is our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night in which he is betrayed. He's in the middle of the garden and he is praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He prays it three times. The second time, the third time, each time he goes back to his disciples, they are asleep. He goes back, falls on his face, says the same prayer again. Jesus confessed. He said, I always do the will of my father. So you need to make sure that whatever it is that you are praying for first and foremost is in alignment with and in conformity with the will of the father. And if it's the will of the father as well, then it will become your will as well. And you won't pray a selfish prayer. You, 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 you will pray, God, if it's possible, if it's your will, let this be done. Let, it, let me be uh, made well and healed from a disease uh, to get a job or whatever the problem is. But you pray for the Father's will and that your will will lie in conformity with his will. And so our prayers will be answered if we will do that. Secondly, not only will our prayers be answered, but God will be glorified. Look at verse 8. 
My father is glorified by this. Well, how? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the way I live will either bring glory to the Father or it will not bring glory, it will bring disgrace to the Father. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify you, brag on you? No, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I am to live my life in a way that will bring honor and glory and respect and reverence and all to the Father. When other people see me, I, 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 I am supposed to be in such a relationship with the Father that people will not see me but Jesus in me. The same thing is true with you. If you are a child of God, Jesus ought to glow in your life. People ought to be able to look at you as they did with Stephen and say his face is like the face of an angel. Why? Because he had spent time with the Lord. Same thing with Peter and Silas and those other disciples. They took note. They were not educated men. They were unlearned men, but they took note. They had been with Jesus. When Moses went up into the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, when he came back down, his face glowed and radiated from having been in the presence of the Lord. Do people think of you that way? Before Stephen was stoned to death, they said, he has the face of an angel. When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see the face of an angel? Do they see a person who is producing the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they see a person who is walking in the flesh? So I'm to live my life in such a way that God is glorified and God will empower me to do that if I abide in him. The third thing is that love is stimulated. Look at verses 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me and I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, going back to when Jesus uh, uh, bathed the feet of his disciples, uh, uh, he made the comment, did he not, that people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. When asked what was the greatest commandment of all, our Lord responded to love the Lord your God. To what? To love the Lord your God with your whole being. The Bible uh, expands that with your whole being, but with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The second commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we are to love one another, and when I am abiding in the Lord, then my love for you and for others as well as for the Lord will be increased. And will be stronger. And then the final thing that will come as a result of it is that joy will overflow. Your heart will be full of joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Not your joy, but his joy. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So... If, if I am abiding in the Lord and the Spirit is in control of me, then I'm going to be full of joy, not happiness. You know, I've reminded you many times the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes from happenstance, and it depends upon what happens or does not happen to me. If things go well for me, then I'm going to be happy. If things don't go well for me, I'm going to be unhappy. But joy is different. 
Joy is not from having or doing. Joy comes from being in a right relationship with God. And when I am right with God and when I am abiding in the Lord, his joy is just going to flood my life. And it's going to be all over me and all through me. Someone has said joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that the king is in residence. This comes from the practice over in England that wherever the queen is, if she is in Buckingham Palace or in one of the other palaces, whenever the queen is in residence, her flag will fly over Buckingham Palace. And that way people will know, well, the queen is at home. The queen is in residence. And that's where this comes from. That the joy is the flag that flies over the heart where Jesus lives. That's how people will know that you are his disciples. You will be a joyful, joyful person. Now, in conclusion, I just want to ask you two questions and I'll be through. First of all, I want to ask you the most important question of all. Are you in Christ? You know, again, a branch cannot produce anything if it's not connected to the vine. So are you in Christ? Which is another way of asking you, have you been saved? Has there ever been a time in your life when you realized that you were a sinner? And you were willing and did admit to Jesus and to the father that you have sinned just like the prodigal son did. He, he said, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You see, I reminded you before that, that sin is more than just something that you do against somebody you know. Sin is what you do against God. When David, in the 51st chapter of the Psalms, prayed his repentant prayer, he began by saying, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, we know that he had sinned against other people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against uh, uh, her husband, had him killed. Uh, he sinned against his nation because he was the king. He sinned against everybody. But first and foremost, he said, Father, against you and you only have I sinned. That is just his way of saying, God, first, I got to start with you. Sin is against God before it is against anybody else. And so you, you pray. And so I ask you, do, have you prayed? Do you realize that you, you are a sinner? that you're not what God had created you to be, that you fall short of the glory of the Lord and that you need to be born again. That's what he said to Nicodemus, a religious leader, a spiritual man. Nicodemus didn't understand. What do you mean born again? I got to go back into my mother's womb and be reconceived and have nine months of pregnancy and then get born and start all over again? No. As you are born of water, you must also be born of the spirit. You were born of the flesh. You must also be born of heaven and of the spirit. You've had a physical birth. You need a spiritual birth. It's what it means to be born again. You change your old life. You become a new creature in Christ. So you realize that you have sinned against God. You repent, which means that you turn away from your sins. You turn to Jesus and you pray and you ask Jesus to come into your heart and come into your life and save you to be your savior. That's what makes you a Christian then you follow through by making it public and letting people know that you're a Christian, being baptized, not because you want to be saved, but because you have been saved. So I ask you, I know most of you here today, are you in Christ? Have you been saved? The second question I want to ask you is, as a Christian, 
Are you abiding in Christ? Do you on a daily basis and perhaps more than once during the day spend time with the Lord being aware that you are in the presence of the Lord? That you carry Jesus around you everywhere you go. He's in your heart. Wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. If you go into a place, an establishment or whatever it might be, a business of some kind uh, that you shouldn't be in, you're taking Jesus with you. When you're looking at material, whether it's on the internet or in a magazine or television or whatever it may be that is unbecoming of a child of God, you are exposing Jesus to that. Have you ever realized that? And so if you are abiding in the Lord, you're not going to want to go to those kinds of places or look in that kind of material or in those kinds of places. Because when you do, you've got Jesus in your heart and you're exposing him to that as well. And you're shaming him and disgracing him and yourself as well. When you are convicted by the Holy Spirit during the day because you said something in anger or hatefulness or rudeness or, or did something or said something you shouldn't have done... Do you not only apologize to the person to whom it was said? Do you ask Jesus to right then and there cleanse you and forgive you for what you said or what you did? Are you walking in the spirit? Are you keeping the commandments of the Lord? If you say that you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. You will abide in my love just as I abide in the Father's love. I'm asking you as a child of God, are you spiritually walking with the Lord? Are you abiding in Jesus? And if not, why not? Let's bow together. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I, I just want you to, to, to do a survey in, in, in my own heart and in my own life as I would trust that those who are here today would ask you to do the same. As the psalmist said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way within me and cleanse me. <laughs> There's no question about it. There are wicked ways within me. All of us have sinned. All of us have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But thank you for Jesus, upon whom you have laid all of our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love as it was demonstrated on the cross. Thank you for becoming sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of your, uh, your righteousness, that we might be dressed in your righteousness, that we might live and walk in righteousness. Thank you for being our true vine. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of abiding in you. May we live our lives in a way that will bring honor and glory to you. And as we come to this invitation, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you'll touch our hearts. If there's one here today who needs to trust Jesus, bring them to that saving knowledge and lead them to make a public decision. If there are other decisions that need to be made, Lord, you know what they is. They will know what it is. May your will be done is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Uh, Brother Andre is going to come. The choir will lead us. Let's stand. If God's leading you to make a decision, please come.